sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Nights in white satin. Hi. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, we devote the entire show to the healthcare of sleep. But first, let me take you back to a specific time and place. Bossier City, Louisiana, early 1970s. It's 3 a.m., and I'm a young teen boy throwing papers for his family's paper room. And literally, these songs come on crackling over AM radio in the humid, lonely morning. There's no one else outside, just you, the moon, and the radio. It was magic. When I listen to these songs, they take me back to a simpler place and time, despite the enchantment of those moments. Truth be told, that paper route left me incredibly sleep-deprived. A lot has happened to our understanding of sleep since then, and we explore the science of slumber on today's show. Joining us is Etty Ben-Simon. She is a neuroscientist in the Center for Human Sleep Science at the University of California, Berkeley. She received her PhD in neuroscience from Tel Aviv University in Israel and has been fascinated with the science of sleep ever since. Etty's work explores the social and emotional consequences of sleep loss on the human brain and body. Using functional MRI and electrical brain recordings, She examines the neural processes that underlie emotional and social dysregulation following lack of sleep and the restoration of these processes after a restful night of sleep. Dr. Ben Simone, welcome to our show. Great to be here, Joe, and uh, sorry for all your sleep loss. I feel sympathetic. <laughs> well, I, I've had, I, I went into the wrong profession as a doctor to get it fixed, but, but you're going to help true. us out today, so I, I, I appreciate it, but, but you know where I'm coming from, at least. Oh, uh, yeah, I feel you. I'm a night owl, and every, every morning waking up for school was, was torture. It's very hard. <laughs> I, I, oh, and we're going to explore some of that. So I guess to get us started... Dr. Ben Simone, can you give us a sense of how important is sleep for overall health and cognitive function, and and how has your research helped to show it's important? Well, sleep influences every physiological system we study to date and every functional circuit we looked into within the brain. It's when you disrupt sleep. It's almost like creating a physiological earthquake. Everything is shaken up, everything uh, is disrupted, and everything comes back to normal when sleep is restored. So when we look across large-scale studies, we see that people who routinely get insufficient sleep, so it's either just not getting enough sleep or having their sleep disrupted, are more likely to have suffer from depression and anxiety. They have greater risks to develop cardiovascular disease, like having heart attacks or strokes, and also uh, metabolic disorders, like developing diabetes 
and uh, glucose intolerance, not being able to process uh, sugar in their blood, and also later in life suffer from dementia. So really a host of diseases that we know are prevalent in uh, modern societies are all linked to insufficient sleep. You can also see these effects in smaller scales when you just take people into the lab like we do. You don't let them sleep for just one night or even uh, partially let them sleep for that night. You already see these effects starting to unfold. You start seeing the decrease in the ability to regulate sugar. You start seeing the change in how they eat. You start seeing the changes in their mood, the changes in blood pressure. So all of these are just coming on so quickly. So you can imagine that if sleep loss is chronic, how they would accumulate into a full-blown disease. This makes so much sense when you think about it uh, in terms of just how people without sleep really can get sick. What is, uh, how important is sleep for your ability to memorize or to, uh, to kind of work cognitively? What, how does that play a role? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, actually, one of the first things we started seeing when uh, sleep uh, research kind of evolved was the impact of sleep on learning and memory. Uh, when you deprive people of sleep, you immediately see that their attention, their ability to pay attention, their focus is impaired, and also their ability to learn. So what they do in these studies is they give you a list of words, you have to memorize them, and then half of the group would get a chance to sleep and half would stay awake. And what you see is a dramatic difference between how many words the people can remember after either staying awake or staying asleep. And if they were able to sleep, they would remember usually more than double the amount of the words uh, relative to people who uh, were not allowed to sleep. And you can also do this with a nap, just taking away a nap or giving a nap after learning. You see that this nap helps solidify some of the new information into memory. So sleep is very critical if we want to create new information. Wow. There is an epidemic everywhere about loneliness and and where everyone has this feeling as though we are reporting more loneliness than ever before. And your lab has explored the connection between sleep, loneliness, and asocial behavior. Can you tell us about that? Because I find that fascinating. Yeah, it's really kind of in the forefront of what we do now in sleep research is trying to expand what we know about sleep affecting the individual into the immediate circle surrounding us. So our interactions with other people and other people, how they interact with, with us. And what we know is that uh, people who report feeling lonely, and we have to emphasize here that loneliness is a subjective feeling. It has to do with how subjectively you feel connected, you feel you can trust the people around you. It's less about how many people are actually around you. So this subjective sense of loneliness, uh, what scientists have noticed is that people who report feeling lonely also report having disrupted sleep. So they're less able to get um, good quality sleep, they wake up more often, they don't feel as refreshed from their sleep. And what we did in the lab is ask the reverse question. Can we take people who don't report high, high levels of loneliness, take away their sleep? Do we see a difference in how they want uh, to interact with other people, their desire to be around other people? And what we found is that this is actually a circle that when you take away sleep, people feel that they are, uh, that they are lonelier, they're less interested to interact with other people. They prefer to keep greater distance from other people. So we can see this vicious cycle that can emerge when you're lonely, your sleep is disrupted. When your sleep is disrupted, you feel lonelier. And the optimistic side of this cycle, because this can all seem very depressing, is that we actually have another way to try to fight loneliness by improving sleep. And it's not as easy sometimes to improve uh, social connectivity, but perhaps it might be easier to improve people's sleep. And another highlight that came out of this study, and I was really surprised by this, is that other people, when they come into contact with someone who's been sleep deprived, even if they don't know that that person has not slept, 
they also indicate that they are less likely to interact with someone who is sleep deprived. <laughs> so this kind of expands, it's propagating loneliness in a way, propagating social isolation. And when you think how prevalent sleep loss is in our societies, you know, up to 40% report not getting the sleep that they need uh, within the US, it really starts to resonate how large is the impact of sleep on the societies we live in. That is absolutely fascinating uh, because I've, I mean, a part of me, I, I get it because I know that when I am tired, the last thing that I want to do is be yeah. interacting with somebody, but I never thought of that sleep connection uh, with others. That is, that's incredible. And we've, um, we've also talked a little bit, I mean, we've discovered a little bit of the mechanism uh, when we were scanning people after sleep deprivation and looking at their brain activity. Uh, what we found is that regions of the brain that typically help us think about other people, what they might need, what they might, um, what are they like, are they different from us? We have a network of regions in the brain that's very activated when we do these kind of activities. And what we found is that without sleep, we just one night of sleep loss, this activity, this uh, network in the brain is just reduced significantly. So sleep loss takes away our ability to really think about other people, to try and put ourselves in other people's shoes, so to speak. So when you lose that ability, perhaps it's also easier in a way to just not consider other people. And indeed, what we found is that when people don't get enough sleep, they're less likely to be helpful to others. They're less likely to help someone carry their grocery bags, for instance. So uh, we're start seeing that it's not just not wanting to be around other people, it's also just mentally not being able to take up that space of other people within your own world. That is amazing. And and what a what a different lens to view uh, some of the societal issues uh, through that. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things that I always struggle with is it seems like sleep deprivation means something different to different people. I've had people who tell me, you know, and, and with other physicians, I only need four hours of sleep and I'm good. I've met someone else who will tell me if I don't have a full eight hours of sleep, I can't function. Yeah. What is sleep? Is there an absolute sleep deprivation or does it vary to the individual? It varies a lot and it varies in, in a couple of dimensions. First of all, how much people, how much sleep people need. So their own innate sleep need can vary anywhere between seven to 10 hours a night. Uh, but also when they need it, which is a different kind of parallel dimension. Some people would prefer to go to sleep early and wake up early, and some people would prefer to go to sleep late and wake up late. And these two uh, kind of open up a two-by-two metrics, if you'd like, that you can be someone who wants long sleep but wants it earlier in the day. You can be someone who wants short sleep and wants it later in the day. There are just different genetics that determine how much sleep we need and when we need it. And I think it's not always easy to know exactly where you fall within this spectrum. And one of the ways that you can try to figure it out is when you have a vacation, when you don't have any obligation in the morning, try not to use an alarm, try to go to sleep as soon as you feel tired. And after a few days of perhaps catching up on sleep, you'll start to notice your own natural rhythm. Wow. And even if it's not something you can always stick to because of different obligations, just knowing how much sleep you need and when you need it gives you something to negotiate with, gives you a sense uh, of, of, of your own sleep. And one thing I think to get rid of in this sense is, is any sense of shame. You know, why can't I survive on five hours or six hours? Or why can't I be a person that wakes up at 7 a.m.? It, it's really kind of asking, like, why is my eye a certain color and not a different one? It's really just pointless in a way. It's fighting against your own biology. Just accept your sleep and, and work with what you have to really be on your best uh, optimal function. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. 
I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and if you're just joining us, we're talking about the health care of sleep, and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservan. Dr. Ben Simone, what does it mean if we have these internal rhythms that are individual? Uh, what does that mean for people who do shift work, uh, uh, nurses, doctors, and uh, certain engineers, um, and you know, and may have a re- irregular schedules? Uh, what happens in those scenarios? It's actually um, a very difficult uh, topic because once we uncouple the our sleep need from our usual circadian rhythm, then our health deteriorates. And actually right now, shift work is considered a probable carcinogen wow. uh, because of the effects of uh, this disruption in the biological clock. And, you know, when everything's all right, we go to sleep and we're tired and that usually happens at night and we wake up in the day and we feel alert during the day. And it's really hard to notice that there are actually two processes happening here. The first one is we're tired because we spend time awake. And the second one is our body is telling us that it's time to go to sleep because it's dark and the sun is setting and it's getting colder. But when you travel, for instance, across the ocean to a different country, you immediately notice that because of the jet lag that these two processes are actually not the same. Suddenly it's dark outside. You feel very, you've been awake for a long time, but there is this arousal within you. It's hard for you to fall asleep. And jet lag exactly unravels these two processes so we can feel that the clock is can do its own thing independently of how tired we are. And this is what happens in a way to people with shift work. Uh, they might finish a shift uh, that they did during the night, be very tired, but find it very hard to fall asleep because their biological clock sees the sun and knows it's daytime and kind of boosts them, keeps them up with uh, more energy. So uh, what people are trying to do to mitigate some of these uh, damages of of uncoupling the the biological clock from sleep is to try and have sheet work done in clusters. So if they do a night shift, they do a couple of them in a row. So the clock has an an opportunity to adjust to this kind of new reverse day before they go back to uh, usual uh, normal uh, shift. So this is something that can help uh, not have the body switch back and forth between night, day, sleep, wake, and all of this, uh, and all the things in between. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is still a big issue that uh, we're trying to understand how to do better. Let me talk about, uh, let's say that you are chronically sleep deprived. It seems that in this world, uh, there's just so, everyone seems very sleep deprived. How might your findings, because you, what you're saying is very profound to me, everything from loneliness to potential carcinogen, if we don't get enough sleep, how should that inform awareness or public policy to address this? That's a great question. I love that you asked that Um, because I think we have two issues. One of them uh, coming from the public itself, demanding better sleep, not being ashamed of needing sleep, understanding and prioritizing uh, uh, sleep and the importance of sleep. Uh, And that's something that talks like yours, uh, podcasts like these, really help bring this information to the public. And I think it's very, very critical. And and the second is once you know that you want to prioritize your sleep, how do you then go about navigating your social obligations, school obligations? And you know, when you think about it for the most of our lives, our sleep is determined more by society than it is by our own sleep need. The minute we have to wake up to school, uh, to go to university, to go to work, we're always coming up against external barriers to our own sleep. And this is where policies are crucial. If we have more flexibility around uh, work time, around early morning meetings, around people who are find it very difficult to get to do a, an exam at 8 a.m., 
once we have this flexibility, once we understand that there is uh, the, the variability in sleep need and sleep timing, I think we can really change a lot of the barriers in towards getting good sleep. COVID, for instance, was a good example. People who are evening types, there was a study that showed a few years ago that people who are evening types benefited so much by having to work remotely. And then because they didn't have to commute, they were able to get an extra hour of sleep each night. And when you compare that to evening types that had to go back to work in person, you see that those that were able to get more sleep were more productive were happier and were feeling better. So just this switch in one extra hour that they were able to sleep can really change so much about their day. And I think we can do more of these uh, flexibility, more of this awareness of people's sleep needs uh, to the benefit of all of us, really. There's been such a rise in remote work and global connectivity, uh, particularly remote work after COVID. Uh, but a lot of this has impacted sleep because we're all so interconnected. What advice do you have for our listeners for maintaining healthy sleep habits in this seemingly crazy digital age? Yeah, you're right. It's it's more up to us now to be very mindful of our sleep and uh, separation somewhat from work and life because they're all now interconnected, like you say. Um, so several things that I can say that uh, I hope would be helpful. First of all, is the external environment in terms of sleep. Um, try to keep uh, your temperature uh, more on the cool side because the body needs to cool down to fall asleep. So if your bedroom is too hot, you're gonna find it difficult to fall asleep. Uh, same thing about light. Uh, like we talked about, the biological clock needs darkness in order to tell the body that it's time to fall asleep. So even before you're ready to go to bed, try to dim the lights, close any lights that you don't need. And if you're using any screens, use a blue light filter so that blue light doesn't suppress uh, your melatonin, which you need in order to fall asleep. So that's in terms of the ex external environment. In terms of psychological, more like the internal environment, Stress is an enemy of sleep. And this is, I think, one of the major issues with being always digitally connected. It's very arousing, especially if you get some negative comment or if you don't get a comment that you wanted to get. If being on social media or being always connected makes you feel aroused, then let it go about an hour before bed give your body and your mind time to relax and calm down before sleep. We kind of do it naturally with children. We have a routine around sleep and we let it go when we're adults. And I think as adults, we actually need it even more because our lives are so hectic. So set aside a time before bed where you're just doing something relaxing, reading, taking a bath, watching something that's not too stressful. And then the body will in itself, come into this sleep mode. Dr. Ben Simon, I'm going to let that be our last word. I think you've given us so much to think about here. This has been absolutely terrific. I, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We've been talking to Dr. Etty Ben Simone. She's a neuroscientist in the Center for Human Sleep Science at the University of California, Berkeley, and she's been talking to us about the importance of sleep. Up next, a local sleep doctor helps answer your questions about sleep disorders. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? You know, of all the healthcare topics we've covered, sleep is by far the most popular. As so many of us have questions regarding sleep, 
So we asked the sleep doctor to join us in studio to help unravel the science behind a good night's rest. Join us as we delve into the mysteries of sleep disorders, discuss cutting-edge treatments, and gain invaluable insights from our sleep doctor on achieving optimal sleep health. Joining us today is Dr. Dennis Ceresso. He's a board-certified sleep medicine specialist, helping patients sleep well consistently at the Florida Sleep Solutions of Jacksonville. Here in Jacksonville, Florida, Dr. Ceresso, welcome to our program. Glad to be here, and thank you for having me. We are so glad to have you here. We have so many questions, uh, not 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 just from the audience, but Lily from uh, uh, Lily, my family, my relatives, everyone who wants to know the answers to to these questions that uh, we're going to ask you. So we're going to start with something um, that's that just happened uh, earlier in November. Uh, daylight savings time. Uh, just occurred. And that has become such a controversy because so many of us are just sick of it. In fact, last time I looked, the national polls show no one wants to be doing this anymore. So I guess the first question is, how does daylight savings time impact sleep? And what are the tips on each side of it? Um, daylight savings is a problem. My wife and I talk about it all the time. Uh, really, uh, daylight savings is almost inducing a circadian rhythm disorder. So what I mean by that is it will shift our normal sleep pattern, uh, one that we are routinely adept to, and it will shift it to a point where we're either waking up early or um, we're having problems staying awake, not enough sleep. And probably the worst is um, springing forward where we would sure. leave and lose an hour. So to some degree, until we uh, acclimate back to a routine circadian rhythm, a sleep-wake cycle that will give us seven to eight hours of sleep, we're going to be a little bit of sleep-deprived. But some of the tips we use for individuals that are trying to shift their bedtime and their wake time uh, are two things. One would be light therapy. Okay. So light therapy would impact our circadian rhythm. So when we adjust our sleep-wake cycles naturally, we use white light to help adjust to the 24-hour day and get seven, hour, seven to eight hours of sleep. So if you want to wake up early, the best thing to do would be to expose yourself to bright light immediately. Even if it's dark, you would expose yourself to the kitchen light while you're having coffee, for instance. That would help reset your circadian rhythm. The next would be sleep restriction. So there's two ways that we initiate sleep, two major modulators of sleep-wake. The first is the circadian rhythm that we spoke about. Okay. The other one would be the homeostatic modality. What that. does that mean? So homeostatic <clears throat> means that there are other pressures that... Um, where that subject us to sleep or pressure us to sleep. So, for instance, all of us have stayed up at night, and although in the morning our circadian rhythm wants us to stay awake, if you stay up a full night, you immediately want to go to sleep in the morning when you white light should be telling you to stay awake. That would be the homeostatic pressure to sleep, in which case we can use sleep restriction so sleep restriction means that you mildly sleep deprive yourself. If you're used to getting seven hours of sleep at night, then only get six. Mm -hmm. And that will help you establish an earlier bedtime. And in that way, if you want to go to bed earlier, you can sleep deprive yourself a little bit at night so that you will initiate sleep earlier. So, so some simple solutions for, for that part. Well, let's see what happens with time uh, if we ever get rid of it. You are a sleep doctor. Can you tell us what what is exactly a sleep doctor? That's a good question. And uh, that probably sleep in and of itself really only started to become very active as a specialty in the last 20 years. Although individuals have been studying sleep aggressively since the 1940s and 50s, certainly the military and the space program. Uh 
But sleep is a combination of different subspecialties uh, that culminates into uh, all things that happen at night or when we're sleeping. If you can imagine, if you sleep seven to eight hours a day, that's about a third of your life you spend sleeping. Yeah. So um, early on, the psychiatrists were interested in sleep medicine because we knew that sleep deprivation could cause psychosis. Then the, the neurologists, because it can induce seizure activity or worsen seizure activity. And then uh, the pulmonologist, as we use certain air blowers and ventilators to treat a common sleep disorder called sleep apnea. And it is a culmination of specialties, uh, but basically we deal with what happens when you're sleeping. It makes perfect sense. So you just mentioned a few things that can happen that go wrong in your sleep. What is the most common condition that someone like you sees? So typically on an outpatient basis in the Western world, sleep apnea is one of the more common sleep disorders that we see. Okay. So sleep apnea means that you stop breathing when you sleep. Mm. Uh, there are some different ways that this can happen. The most common way this can happen is obstructive, which means that the floppy area of your upper airway, mostly where your tongue meets your, your larynx or your Adam's apple, tends to collapse at night. Right. Uh, that happens many times in adults, typically past the age of 40. Many of us are prone to that. But it can be just as common in children as well. However, in children, it's most likely due to enlarged tonsils and adenoids. One of the things that I hear a lot about from almost everyone is that we are so wired, uh, both figuratively and sometimes literally, uh, with the amount of devices, whether it's an Apple Watch or it's a the clock uh, in the room, the computer, whatever. It, there's a, a, someone joked that sometimes you walk into a bedroom and it looks like the cockpit of a seven four seven with how how decked out it is, and and how do you get sleep? So my my simple question is how what do these electronic devices do to sleep, and what should we be doing about those devices? That's a great question. So I think number one on the list would be uh, stimulation. So cognitive stimulation, especially emotional stimulation. So when people get on their devices, it may stimulate an emotional response, right. certainly a TV or, for instance, a horror movie. The second would be the uh, introduction of light. So again, this, that circadian rhythm again. So you're exposing yourself to... Uh, a bright light or a bright screen that may shift your circadian rhythm and cause you to be more aroused when you should be thinking about sleep. Uh, those are the two major things that I think electronic devices. Lastly, it prevents you from winding down and relaxing. So you want a period of time before bedtime or sleep where you can just relax and try and let sleep come and induce sleep. Uh, quickly. I keep reading about the color of the light of the clock or of whatever. Does does that matter whether it's blue, white, or orange uh, that I've seen? D does that impact things? Yes, yes. So when I talk about white light, most of us are exposed to white light, which will induce or uh, stimulate a circadian response uh, at about 7,000 lux. However, the real culprit is um, blue light okay. or visible light in the blue spectrum, about 470 nanometers. So if you want to try and reduce your exposure uh, and that stimulation to your circadian rhythm, you can buy blue blocking glasses. Oh. So in fact, when we try and treat circadian rhythm disorders in individuals that are trying to offset that circadian response, but they have to work or commute, we ask them to wear glasses that will block blue light. You can buy blue blocking glasses that are clear that you can use on while you uh, use your electronics or watch TV at night. Uh, interestingly enough, green light 
does the opposite. It's more sedating, about 550 nanometers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I don't see too many of those no. uh, for, for uh, device-wise. Well, when it comes to sleep itself, uh, there's so many uh, misconceptions. What do you think is the most common misconception that you encounter as a practicing sleep doctor? And what should we know about it so that we don't fall under that trap of misunderstanding? So I think there are two. Uh, the first is that the, only the symptom needs to be cured. Uh, people come complaining that they can't sleep. Either they have disrupted sleep or they have problems initiating sleep or they're waking up throughout the night. And if only I could get good sleep and continuous sleep, everything would be better. Right. When in fact, there's an underlying problem. It's kind of like treating the cough without treating the infection. Yeah. So, for instance, commonly uh, insomnia or perceived insomnia or difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep can be caused by common sleep disorders like sleep apnea or psychiatric disorders. Mood disorder, for instance, uh, major depression, generalized anxiety can cause difficulty initiating and maintaining sleep. Without treating the underlying problem, it's very difficult to treat the symptom. Um, Second, I think, would be not only individuals that come in feeling that only the symptom needs to be addressed, but they just need more sleep. They may have a perception of sleepiness during the day. I'm just not getting enough sleep at night. I'm going to spend more time in bed. So on Saturdays, days off, holidays, they'll end up spending <laughs> 10, 11 hours in bed. They'll nap all throughout the day. And they don't get quality sleep, which is important. It's right. really not quantity. It's actually quality. And, and what does quality sleep mean? So quality sleep, there are three stages of sleep. Sure. Um, one, two, and three, three being the deepest. And then dream sleep or REM, rapid eye movement sleep. We need deep sleep and rapid eye movement sleep. Okay. Unfortunately, with many sleep disorders, people get very light sleep. They may only stay in stages one and two, and that leaves them tired during the daytime or fatigued. They're not getting, um, they're not getting anxiety relief, so to speak, with dream sleep. And unfortunately, they can also get something called sleep state misperception which means, Doc, I've been in bed for 10 hours and I didn't sleep awake. Yep. <laughs> but in fact, when they come into the sleep lab, yes, you're sleeping. It's just very light sleep. So people I have see. this awareness that they're still awake or they're aware of things around them. They're easily aroused. I love that. That, that makes so much sense the way you're explaining that. Um, one thing I hear a lot about is age. Um, I see like kids... Uh, some, I, I know like the very young ones have a certain need for sleep and naps yet in older adults, uh, they sometimes also seem to also be, uh, sleep with naps as well. How, what, how does age impact all of our needs, if you will? So sleep through the ages, um, uh, probably one of the best things that came to light over the past 10 to 15 years are the differences in sleep between children, teens, and adults. Children, for instance, and, adult, and young adults or teens up to the age of 25 can require up to 10 and a half hours of sleep in a 24-hour period. They also shift their circadian rhythm. So as when they're young, they might go to bed at 8.30 in the evening and wake up at 6.00. Once puberty hits, they kind of want to go to sleep between 11 at night and 1 in the morning and stay up until about, and get up at around 9 or 10 in the morning. And our scholastic system doesn't allow for that. Uh, that can persist for some people throughout the years. Then as adults, we tend to like uh, 10 in the evening, 10 p.m. bedtime, wake time of about 6 a.m., about 8 hours of sleep. We may or may not nap during the day. That typically will persist even into older ages, although we see mostly in the geriatric population that they become more sedentary, so they'll nap more because they have the opportunity. 
they may perceive that they're tired or fatigued more, but they're not sleepy. So given the opportunity to sleep, they may not, but yet they may perceive more fatigue or loss of energy. I see. How does sleep and mental health connect? You brought this up when you said some psychiatrists were interested in this. Um, how does sleep and mental health, which is, you know, we see so much anxiety, depression these days. How, how, what, what's the relationship? So this can very much be a vicious cycle. So mood disorders or any type of psychiatric disorder can disrupt sleep. It can cause a reduction in sleep by quantity and quality. This will then drive the mood disorder and the anxiety or, or the anxiety. Uh, people will get more depressed or they'll become more anxious because they're not getting enough sleep. They're sleep deprived. Or if you put someone in a situation where they're getting poor sleep or less sleep, that can induce psychiatric disorder. That can induce major depression, anxiety, a feeling of restlessness. In fact, if you keep someone awake enough, they will start hallucinating and have psychosis. And many will seize. They will have seizure disorder. Understood. One other area that comes up a lot has to do uh, with things that we drink. And I'm going to go right to alcohol. Uh, I know many, uh, a relative, and I'm not going to name names today, uh, that talks about a little glass of, of sherry, a little brandy, a little glass of red wine. What what does alcohol do uh, with regards to sleep? So there are many ways that alcohol can impact sleep. Uh, more commonly, it will disrupt sleep. So uh, we use it many times as a sedative. It's usually one of the first things that people with chronic insomnia will use to induce sleep. Many over-the-counter preparations have a little bit of alcohol in them. It's sedating. It will bring upon non-REM sleep or stages okay. one, two, and three. However, later in the evening, as the alcohol levels peter off, it will disrupt sleep. You'll get kind of a short, short-term withdrawal symptom from, from alcohol, certainly with chronic drinkers, individuals who drink routinely in the evening. However, most importantly in adults, alcohol is a very potent muscle relaxant. Hmm. So individuals who may have the tendency to lightly snore or not snore at all, their upper airway will relax even more. So as we sleep, all of our muscles relax. Uh, most importantly, in REM sleep, we get something called REM atonia, uh, which means most of our muscles, uh, apart from our diaphragm, will become very flaccid. And that's the brain's way of keeping you from acting out your dreams. Unfortunately, that also means that your upper airway becomes even more floppy. So alcohol can actually induce sleep apnea. In fact, when someone wakes up with a hangover, it's actually not the alcohol that caused the hangover. The alcohol will induce sleep disordered breathing, and that will induce the headache. So huh. the alcohol will cause sleep disordered breathing, which lowers your oxygen levels, increases your carbon dioxide, your brain will ask for more blood, it will swell, and you'll wake up with kind of a dull headache hangover. Should we avoid alcohol then, based on like all the up and downs of what you just mentioned? I routinely suggest to patients that maybe they should not drink after 4 p.m., Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> okay. Well, it's on record now uh, for, for all that. Let, let me go to yet another topic that seems to be so common. I know of, I, I, I can tell you how many people buy melatonin uh, drops, gummies, they buy CBD, all under this guise of things to help for sleep that are not, that are over the counter, not prescription. If someone needs help before they call someone like you, what is the over the counter choice, a gentlest thing that's effective? Because there's because uh, as people seem to spend a lot of money on these things. Absolutely, it's become a big industry. Um, 
prior to the recording, we were talking about tryptophan. Yes. So tryptophan is a protein that can be very sedating. It can be in dairy products and turkey. Um, valerian root mm-hmm. is another one. Melatonin. So anything that we actually buy over the counter is unregulated. So you do have to be careful about the preparation. Um, the FDA doesn't closely look or regulate most products sold over the counter. Things that we take over the counter are really meant as a short-term panacea, right? Take it for maybe a week, a couple of weeks. Everything that has sinus in it means that you probably have the flu or a bad upper respiratory infection, and this will help you get to sleep for the next couple of weeks and then stop. It's really not meant to take long-term. So just addressing melatonin, melatonin is a natural hormone that your body produces that will increase 90 minutes to two hours prior to your initial bedtime or when you typically fall off to sleep. So if you are going to take melatonin, it should be for short term. And you should take it about 90 minutes to two hours prior to bedtime, prior to when you want to actually fall asleep. If you take it at your bedtime, you'll get sort of a bimodal effect. Two, two different peaks, whereas the melatonin, the natural melatonin will help facilitate sleep, but then the exogenous melatonin, what you just took, will kind of augment that and then fall off quickly. So you have to kind of be careful with that. There are indications where we will prescribe melatonin um, for sleep, and that's for individuals that really can't set their circadian rhythm because they're uh, blind to the extent where they cannot see natural light, and also in a disease process called uh, REM sleep behavior disorder, where we're trying to kind of limit the amount of dream sleep they have later on in the evening to reduce their behaviors at night. Can you comment on CBD? That's another huge one that people seem to be gravitating towards for this purpose. Right. There's not much data on that that I know of that I can really um, describe to you uh, Whether or not it works, again, should be done in a short-term fashion. Uh, If symptoms persist more than a month to two months, you really should seek professional help. And the last one would be diphenhydramine. So diphenhydramine, many people know as a brand name Benadryl. We've used it for a long time in the medical field. So histamine itself is a neurotransmitter and a stimulatory transmitter. So Benadryl or diphenhydramine is an antihistamine that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier and gets into the brain and will cause drowsiness because it's counteracting the effects of histamine. However, the problem is this will actually in time backfire because your brain will start upgrading its histamine receptors and it takes more and more antihistamine Uh, uh. to get that same effect. So again, these should be short-term remedies. Let me ask you this, an overall question as we, because uh, I know we only have a few minutes uh, left, but when should someone see someone like you? When do they say, I need to see a sleep doctor? What What's that threshold? I think it's different for everyone. Uh, typically for the sleep disordered breathing uh, diseases like primary snoring or sleep apnea, it's usually the bed partner that starts pushing the patient to see professional help because they're not getting any sleep. However, if you don't have a bed partner that's actually encouraging you, typically if if symptoms are persisting greater than three months, it's time to seek professional help. So much has changed in medicine. What advancements in sleep medicine has occurred in the recent years and And how do they help us? One of the things that I wanted to express was the awareness of drowsy driving. And what uh, that, which sounds to me very scary, but yeah, go ahead. So drowsy driving is when people drive when they're actually drowsy. Uh, Now, the EU has had quite a campaign to uh, try and combat drowsy driving for a long time. However, drowsy driving can be just as bad as drunk driving. Yeah. And for a lot of commercial truckers or airline pilots, um, 
it's there's been uh, a campaign now in the United States to try and combat that and make the roads safer. So I think that program in and of itself. One, the second one I already touched on uh, is the awareness with the differences in sleep throughout the ages. Many scholastic programs now are changing their school start times to address a lot of the sleep deprivation in teenagers especially. So they're starting classes later and they're going later into the evening or into the afternoon. In uh, during this holiday season, I'm going to let you have the opportunity to give a gift to all of our listeners since this is such a big deal. Sleep is. What piece of preventative medicine would you offer to anyone out there listening that that may be helpful to them so it doesn't to, to really improve their sleep? What would you like them to do or what could you offer them? The big three. Um, Nutrition, exercise, and sleep. All right. We heard it there. That's as simple as as ABC with that. Dr. Soressa, I, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us today. This has been so helpful. I learned stuff uh, that I think a lot of other folks will appreciate. Thanks so much uh, for what you do and also for joining us uh, today with your wisdom and advice. Thank you for having me. It was great being here. We've been talking to sleep specialist, Dr. Dennis Soresso. Uh, he's here in Jacksonville, Florida, and he's been answering our very common questions regarding sleep medicine. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacy Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is a show on holographic surgery. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jservin. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com/shop.